Dateline, Chapo Dateline, Monday, May 8th. Here we go. Um, like to start off the show with uh, some positive news or just um, just something that made me feel good. Um, uh, did you guys see the thing Sean shared about the seven principles of the Japanese French Fries Association? I'm sorry, what? Okay, sorry. I was just uh, I was wondering if you guys had seen uh, the thing shared. Yeah, I've heard you. What? It, what is the Japanese French Fry Association? Well, okay, someone translated this. There is something called the Japan French Fries Association, and they have seven principles that of what they stand for. And I would just like to share them with you now under the rubric of these things I believe. So the seven principles of the Japan French Fries Association are, number one, love French fries and eat them at least once a week. Number two, eat all the French fries you are served. Number three, do not pressure others to like French fries as you do. Number four, do not persecute those who dislike French fries. Number five, do not blame French fries for making you fat. Number six, do not use French fries to commit a crime. And number seven, honor and respect those who grow potatoes. I think that those are, those are seven, seven rules for life that I think uh, all people of sound heart and mind and body can get behind. Although I have to admit, sometimes I do not eat all of the French fries I am served. I can't promise that I won't try to commit a crime with a French fry, just mostly to see if it's possible. I'm just intrigued by the very idea of it. I think you commit a, commit, could commit a crime with like a deep fryer. You could, you could hurt someone very badly with that, but like French fries That's themselves, true. maybe if they were fresh out of the deep fryer and you sort of just flung them at someone, I think that might hurt. But uh, also, don't pressure people to love French fries. I mean, I, that's the one rule I disagree with. I think others should be pressured into eating French fries. I will not eat the French fries. <laughs> will you be eating the sweet potato French fries? Definitely not. I mean, I was <laughs> kidding about the French fries. Of course, I'll eat the French fries. But sweet potato fries are one of the greatest frauds ever perpetrated on the American people. Sometimes they're okay. Never. Never good. They're called sweet potatoes for a reason. It just throws off the entire flavor profile yeah they're not even better for you exactly they just, they, they, uh, they just suck dick yeah it's like yeah eating like a roasted sweet potato is like that's a perfect food it's got all your nutrients but if you're frying that shit that's out the window you might as well get the real russet goodness i like um like uh thin thin french fries i'm a fan of those oh those like are the, yes absolutely the thinner, i like the, the, better the japanese french fries association if they have any standards for like you know what is an ideal french fry you know, for some reason, I just imagine that the Japanese would like be finding ways to make even thinner and thinner French fries, like one molecule long French fries, like microfilament French fries. <laughs> and I would love to try that. Sort of like the real versions of the like handicap, uh, like potato sticks. Yes, but even more narrow, like 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 spaghetti strand width, <laughs> but French fry. Well. Uh, Japanese French Fry Association. If you, if like anyone to... can do it, it's the Japanese. So fucking Godspeed. Well, uh, for today's show, uh, uh, the New York Times has gifted us with uh, two great profiles of two um, top business, intellectual, and social leaders. And I'd like to begin today by, uh, you know, dipping into uh, some hell on earth. Uh, the New York Times has come through with a profile of um, the, basically the heir to the Habsburg uh, dynasty. He's a race car driver from Austria. And you know, I know, Matt, I wanted to get your take on this because you wrote that um, great piece for Slate a couple of weeks ago um, reviewing uh, another Habsburg sort of uh, rules of life, rules for uh, not, not French fry related rules, but rule, you know, rules for living. You yes. compared it to Mark Edward Corrigan's. Habsburg's book, uh, The Habsburg Way, which, as I said <laughs> in the article, is essentially a cross between 
Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life and Mark Corrigan's Business Secrets of the Pharaohs. Like, that's the vibe generally. But it actually is what it really is. Like, that's a very thin veneer. And obviously, it was like a marketing tactic to get normies to read it. But the real purpose of the book is to make a pitch first on behalf of the Orban government in Hungary that he works for as ambassador to the Vatican. And secondly, to pitch the Habsburgs as like a potential figurehead for like a future pan-European like nationalist revival. Like, hey, you guys, you know, if you want all these epic based uh, political principles, you're going to need somebody who embodies tradition with a V and nobody uh, holds up that standard more than us the Habsburgs but of course the funny thing is is that his relative the the heir Ferdinand another goddamn Ferdinand it just drives race cars that's all he wants to do he doesn't want to be the figurehead of your fucking nationalist movement he wants to go vroom vroom in a circle and why wouldn't he well yeah this is this article is about Ferdinand Ferdinand Haps, Habsburg Lothringen the article begins, Ferdinand sometimes goes for a run around the 1,441-room Schönbrunn Palace, the former summer residence of the Habsburg rulers of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He loves taking in the manufactured gardens, the mazes, one of the world's oldest zoos still in existence, and one of the largest Baroque orangeries in the world. I go there to wander around the beauty, he said, as do the tourists who can visit for an entrance fee of $22 and up. But once in a while, things can feel a little weird in a way that is unique to Mr. Habsburg. There's a bedroom inside the palace that would have been mine if I was crowned prince, he said, noting that he knows which one it is. The first time I'd visited this place on a class trip when I was 14, I just thought I would never arrange my room like that. Uh, I would like to know more about the, uh, the largest Baroque orangeries in the world. I mean, is that what I think it is? Is that just like a place where they grow oranges? Orangery? What the fuck? An orchard? An or- yeah, this is an orangery. I've the never largest heard of that. Baroque orangery. <laughs> but it's got, yeah, hedge mazes, one of the oldest zoos still in existence. I mean, I, that's for $22, if you can see the large, world's largest Baroque orangery and one of the oldest zoos in the world. Although I got to say, the concept of one of the oldest zoos in the world sounds kind of depressing. Especially when you consider that uh, what that means is that the Habsburgs probably to this day uh, have a zoo that they get to go to a human zoo, <laughs> the heir to this zoo that they had to give up. But I just like, I like the idea of Ferdinand visiting his, what would have been his Royal crown bedroom on a class trip. And he's just looking around going, uh, where's the race car bed? Where's the Xbox? I don't want to, I don't like any of this shit. Yeah, I don't like any of this bullshit, but yeah, he's the, he's the heir to the, the, the grandest Catholic empire that's maybe ever existed. Would you say that or the Spanish Spanish? Or well, they were Habsburgs too. No, they were, they yeah. were, they, they had the chance to create global Catholic hegemony because they did start the project of new world colonialism that would like, define, you know, the, the future uh, destiny of like the world economy. And they fucking blew it. They spit the bit. Uh, the, the, the hustling, grinding Protestants of the low countries and England ate their fucking lunch. Uh, and then they just drifted into irrelevance, which is what makes that book, uh, so annoying is because he's enumerating all that fucking virtues that his ancestors had, you know, and all the battles they've won and all the piety they showed and all the wise decisions they made. But then you look at what he is and what his ne- cousin is. And it's like, you all, they're all gone. You just, you gave up. Over time, you surrendered slowly to the point that you just 
uh, ended up embodying all the values that, that Edward hates. Like, dude, you're a fucking influencer. You take selfies <laughs> in the Vatican. That's your job. You're fucking the guy who's supposed to be in charge of your empire is ro- zooping around in circles. Like he's the, the, all of your all the things you represent have been extinguished by you, by your failures, by the fact that you got owned so fucking much. Just to I will just to defend the Spanish Habsburgs. Um, they didn't lose; they beat themselves. They I mean that is uh, true. They so, yes, they were so successful that uh, they made gold completely worthless. And um, started a new Spanish tradition. Yeah. Not working. Um, <laughs> just never doing any work. Yeah, but before that, let's not forget what happened. They almost snuffed out Protestantism in the crib. They tried. They all, Charles V almost did it. Carlos he, Primero almost did it. If his horse was a little bit faster, you know? Honestly, I'm of the opinion that he should have called the bluff of the early Protestant electors and killed him at Worms killed martin luther at worms just say i i i dare you to start shit over this because i think it was early enough that they might not have uh they might not have wanted to they were still worried that the that was what was happening in their cities was going to like end up destroying them so they might have been happy to see him die honestly well yeah if he had done it at that point like uh Protestantism would have been it would have been like those million other like christian sects like anabaptists or whatever where it just it never got out of the studio. Yeah, you cathars. I think what you would have had more real. It was so like it took on so much in in uh, uh, Germany that I don't think it could really be restrained the way that you know Catharism was or something. But I do think that you could have seen sort of a uh, Hussite style arrangement made with German Catholicism. As and do for the Germans what had been done for the Bohemians a hundred years ago, where they're like, look. We can't beat it out of you, but like we'll make arrangements so that you have a special church within the church. And they could have done that if they uh, gotten rid of Luther earlier and, you know, done a show of force. They might have been able to make that accommodation with uh, German Protestantism. And then it wouldn't have spread necessarily the way it did. So you're saying like the Catholics, they had some they had some easy dubs in the early rounds of the playoffs against the Cathars and the Albigensians. But mm-hmm. then, like, you know, once they got out of their bubble season, um, as the great man said, you had a chance to be a cop and you blew it. And you blew it. You blew it. You blew it. You, you had a chance you, to be the, 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 the old, and you know what? When you look at the Catholic they, Empire they, and you blew it, they had a chance to like Zerg rush the North Sea, which is like <laughs> where the where the where the Protestant capitalist cancer was like incubating. They could have gotten in there and done early surgery and removed it, but the goddamn the literal Earth rose up to stop them. The fucking storms just come in and wipe the uh, Spanish Armada off the map. God shows up and says, nope, these are my guys. <laughs> the moment <laughs> I mean, has good, passed you by. That's a good point that you guys make in the miniseries. Like, regardless of the uh, theological disputes between Catholicism and Protestantism, it's just like, check the record. You know, like, who, who's in control of the weather? Who makes yes. the weather? Pretty much, pretty much anything that could be attributed to a quote act of God during the era uh, goes to the side of the Protestants. It always goes to the Protestants. It's uncanny. Uh, I just want to say, just as we're talking about, I, I've been trying to figure out what's going on here because both Edward Habsburg has this book out, and then we see this big profile of Ferdinand Habsburg. So, like, what's like, you know, did they did the Habsburgs pick up a new PR agent? Like, what what are they trying to That's push? That's got to be it. Yeah, but I'm just saying that between these two things, you really see that in Edward and Ferdinand, you see a goofus 
and a gallant of what you can do with modern aristocracy. And it's not the ones that they would think are, are the ones. Exactly. No, the gallant here is Ferdinand. Yes. Yeah, I mean, no, he's, he's, is the Edward. He is doing what the modern equivalent of like courtly uh, tournaments were. Like he is. This is jousting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is modern jousting. And the thing about jousting is that even if you were the king, it was dangerous. Henry II of fucking France died with a lance splinter going through his eyeball. Henry VIII almost died in a uh, in a very da- very bad uh, jousting accident that left him with a fucking open wound on his thigh for the rest of his life. It never closed. <laughs> Jesus Ugh. Christ. Oh, like, that was like, so hey, darling. I am earning my keep as a fucking, uh, uh, as an aristocrat by performing these feats of, of, of danger. Fucking Edward is just posting the vilest <laughs> occupation. <laughs> well, Matt, uh, the, the most important than anything, the most craven and modern and individualistic and bugmanish occupation. While while well, petulantly holding on to the idea of some kind of earthly importance of his uh, his yep. power or significance, because he wants to be like the he's still looking at politics like as a live wire for like validation, and that makes you the loser of the family, like. Of the Trump children, the one who took the opportunity to grab at political relevance and become a politics guy, Don Jr., is the most pathetic loser of them. It's like the loser is the one who tries to kind of fix his position by imagining that there's a escape hatch in the form of politics. And that like, is a delusion. Uh, and Edward and Don are completely enraptured by it. Compare that to Ferdinand, like Matt, you said, like the 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 twenty first century equivalent of uh, jousting, and the the Habsburg who had like an open leg pussy for the rest of his life because of a lance <laughs> goring him. Um, no, uh, Ferdinand won Le Mans, the twenty four hour car race in France. The you know, if you seen Ford v Ferrari, is like the most prestigious race event in the world. But I got to say, Ferdinand um, does come across pretty well in this article. Like whatever. Uh, Honestly, the Habsburg family read your (laughs) read your review of Edward's book. And then they were like, we got to we got to shuffle out the the cool one. Yeah, let's get the cool guy out there. (laughs) But it says here, uh, Mr. Habsburg is the 25 year old heir apparent to the House of Habsburg Lorraine. His great grandfather was Charles I, the last emperor of Austria and the king of Hungary. Before him, other ancestors ruled for more than 600 years, presiding over a vast global empire. In 1918, at the end of World War I, Austria became a republic, and the Habsburgs, often rendered as Habsburg in English, were dethroned and sent into exile. Charles I died on the Portuguese island of Madeira in 1922. The Habsburgs were allowed back into Austria if they renounced their claims to rule, which Mr. Habsburg's grandfather, Otto, did in 1961. In 1966, he returned only for a few hours by car from Bavaria. Today, Austria is a democratic republic with a president, chancellor, and parliament. And while some members of the former ruling family, like Mr. Habsburg himself, are living in Austria again, they still have no power or privilege. Instead, he is an ordinary citizen, one who races cars in the FIA World Endurance Championship and lives in an apartment in Vienna with his 22-year-old sister, Gloria Habsburg Lothringen. When he visits the uh, Capuchin Crypt in Vienna, the place his grandparents lay and where he and his father, Karl von Habsburg, will most likely be laid to rest, he sometimes has to pay the nearly $10 entrance fee like other tourists. Damn. It's a little crazy, (laughs) he said, laughing. It's my lying place, but I still have to pay to visit. See, he's got the right attitude about this. He's sort of he's sort of bemused. He's just chuckling like, oh, ain't that funny how things (laughs) how things turn out. (laughs) 
The Habsburgs aren't close to the British royals, said Robert Seidel, an Austrian historian and a royal expert, which is perhaps why they were not invited to the coronation. The Catholic monarchies kind of stick together, and the other monarchies stick together, Mr. Seidel said. The British royal family oversees the Church of England. Charles is now the supreme governor. Mr. Habsburg is a Catholic, a progressive one, he said, so devout that he carries a rosary with him at all times. Oh, I do like that detail that... Uh, all the royal families come to a royal wedding? Yeah, that, that the uh, Catholics stick together and the Protestants uh, royals stick yeah. together. Like They get they do uh, Sharks shark. versus Jacks runs rumbles. <laughs> They're almost all Protestant. All the ones who are still enthroned now. They're almost all Protestant. Like what? The King of Spain? I'm trying to think of like Catholic monarchs who are actually like heads of state somewhere. I think it's like the King of Spain. And the Pope. Well, now he eats humble pie. And now I work <laughs> at the pizza pizza. One, two, three, four. I do the like king this of Belgium stuff. might be. Hold on a minute. I'm sorry. The king of Belgium might be a uh, Catholic. I think he is. Yeah. I just think like, you know, royalty. I mean, like, just get together and have a big royal party. Like all the surviving Suck royals the in the world. They should no have. Where was their invite to the wedding? Harry got to go. That, that, God, that, that must have been traitor. Yeah. <laughs> But I do, I do like this. The uh, Mr. Habsburg has a name fit for a king. Are you ready for this? Ferdinand Zvonimir Maria Balthus Keith Michael Otto Antal Bonham Leonard von Habsburg Lothringen. But no palaces, <laughs> no crown, and no golden carriages to go with it. Keith? There's a Keith, Keith. in there. <laughs> Keith. Where did the Keith come from? <laughs> Keith Michael Otto. You know, it's pretty funny. So... You know, the Habsburgs, according to Edward, represent this uh, traditional society, you know, traditional values. And yet the, the Habsburgs are like one of the first families to hyphenate after a marriage, because the reason it's Habsburg Lorinthian is because when Maria Theresa was heir, the only person left around to be heir to the, the, the Austrian throne was this woman, Maria Theresa. She had to fight a war to keep the throne, war of Austrian succession. And then part of the compromise was that her husband would become like co-ruler and they stuck his name, Laurentian, onto it to make it one thing. So that it's, But it kept the Habsburg instead of changing over to the Laurentian. So they literally were the first hyphenates like because of her career. And she didn't want to give it up because Maria Theresa wanted to be a girl boss. Uh, but like uh, the line where it says like he doesn't have a golden carriage or privilege. Well, I mean, he's got a race car. He's got a freaking race car. <laughs> yeah, it's not, not bad. Yeah. Mr. Habsburg has no role in government and no diplomatic power, yet he sometimes meets with the Pope and represents his family at Vatican gatherings where he is given a seat of honor. Edward Habsburg, a relative, is Hungary's ambassador to the Holy See. Mr. Habsburg will oversee one thing when his father dies, the Order of the Golden Fleece, an order of chivalry founded in 1430. All members are male and Christian. Members, including multiple heads of state, meet once a year to discuss the important issues of the world. It's like a think tank, Mr. Von Habsburg, the father said. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm assuming because of your negative review, you will not be getting an invite to the Order of the Golden Fleece, either Matt or Chris. Uh, but I mean, yeah, probably not. I'm just thinking this guy's a you know 25 year old, and just like thinking about how irritating it is to have to go to like I don't know Thanksgiving dinners, Christmas dinners <laughs> when you're that age. But your Thanksgiving dinner is like uh, audience with the Pope. And you're like, ah, oh, geez, what am I going to talk to this guy about? <laughs> oh, man, I got to talk to the Pope. Fuck. You're just waiting until you can get dismissed by the Pope to go. But yeah, play Xbox or whatever. Yeah, it's like he is. He did not see the Indy 500. <laughs> oh, got to talk about politics again with my family. 
<laughs> with with whoever can you imagine what the crowd is at the order of the golden fleece oh, meetings brother. like uh, what else was the order was the order of the golden fleece were they were they were they, were they players back in the day or were they something more than a think tank or is this just sort of like a, a title it was a, it was a personal patronage network basically like uh, a lot of kings had that it was a way for dynasties to uh, get leverage uh, over the aristocrats who they otherwise had to sort of compete for with power or compete with over power so like they would create these like exclusive clubs and then you know get selected aristocrats into them and it became you know sort of a a a, a, a parallel to the cabinet type of deal where there's like a potential for influence and social engagement you know uh access lobbying basically uh and so the order the, and so the order of the golden fleece was something that yeah the uh, Habsburgs could dangle over uh, aristocrats. Uh, the king uh the Tudors had one of the, had that too. They had the garter. They had the order of the garter, uh, and uh, they would offer this, and you'd uh, you'd be a garter knight, and you'd come and like hang out in a booth together, and like swear to you know defend Albion or something. Uh, and yeah, Charles uh, Frederick V was an order member of the order of the garter, uh, the guy who started the holy the Thirty Years' War. And after he lost the Battle of White Mountain and had to flee, a lot of uh, Habsburg propaganda showed him running with a uh, garter like around his ankle, right. like, falling off of his leg, <laughs> like you're fucking owned. Another detail from the story here: it says the Habsburgs. There are about six hundred of them living today. He said, "Try to keep in touch." We have a WhatsApp group, Mister Habsburg said. I can travel anywhere in the world, and I text the group and I say where I'm going. And when there is a house, I can stay at it, he added with a laugh. It's like a free Airbnb for us Habsburgs. That's cool. Can we get out? Someone have, someone have access to the Habsburg group chat, please? Please add I would us. like to find out what, what memes they're sending each other. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little bit. Yeah, he says he got into endurance racing instead of uh, being, <laughs> being, a, being a, a sort of anointed by God ruler. Uh, he got into endurance racing, whose races last six to 24 hours. Uh, in 2021, he won Le Mans, a 24-hour race in northwestern France that is widely considered to be the world's most prestigious sports car race. Before drivers are salaried, they have to raise a hefty amount of money, six or even seven figures to join a team. Many have independent funds or relentlessly court sponsors who dictate their whereabouts. When Mr. Habsburg first started, he was funded by his mother. Ms. von Tyson Bornemisa's family had made a fortune in steel and energy. Now he has all the sponsors he needs, he said. I won't have to ask my mom for money again. But shit, I mean, like, that's a that's a good ask, you know? His parents, like, they were like, you don't need a sponsor. You're the you're the scion of a, you know, a lapse dynasty. But hey, we still have all the money from steel and energy. But I got to say, that is very impressive about winning Le Mans. It is. He's a, that's the thing is that that really sells us is that he, he's not just a dilettante. He's actually good. Yeah, he's not a Formula One guy, but still not bad. Are we assuming that? Thyssen from the his mom's family is the Thyssen Krupp Thyssen. Oh boy, I mean it seems likely, right? Both Thyssen yeah. and Krupp were like Nazi industrialists. <laughs> Although, Although Thyssen did end up in a concentration camp. Uh, they, they, he goes out of, out of his way later in the article to say that the Habsburgs were anti-Nazi during World War II. Thank you very much. Well, yeah, because they weren't in charge. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, if they hadn't gotten rid of the uh, the monarchy, they would have been like, sure, go for it. Yeah, it's not. well, it's not like they disagreed like, on a Victor policy Emmanuel platform. What did Victor Emmanuel do in Italy when Mussolini showed up? Well, that's the, uh, that's the first of two, uh, like, sort of uh, PR-pitched uh, New York Times pieces. About, I, d- I just wanted you know, to say the, one... Sorry. 
last thing that made this made me think about, which is that, you know, this weekend ha- saw this big PR article about uh, the modern Habsburgs. And then also, of course, the uh, coronation of Charles III mm, as the yes. king of England. Uh, and, you know, just as I've been my radar has been primed for breaking 17th century news. This really is the culmination of what or at least what I thought of it as two sides of you, you see the sore winners of the long 17th century in the English Mm-hmm. And the happy losers of the long 17th century and our, um, you know, contented race car driving Habsburgs because yes. the, these English monarchs who still insist on all the trappings of the monarchy, these huge expenditure of wealth around keeping this institution alive. Every audio clip you've ever heard of Charles III is him just being uh, petulantly uh, furious at having to miserable, interact, miserable at interacting with any part of the modern world or anyone around him. I and hate yet, this. Yes. And yes, <laughs> like monarchy, monster. Yes. And yet their monarchy still must persist in the modern world while the happy Habsburgs uh, just drive car, go fast, vroom, vroom. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. Let, let uh, the Windsors rule. You happy Habsburgs uh, chill. Yes. You happy Austria tick, kick back. You don't want those grimace grippers like Charles yes. has. His hands haunt me. He's got the grimace grippers. Every finger is a miniature grimace. It's horrifying. I mean, the uh, at one point in the article, like it, it does make a a comparison to the British royal family in that they're like, oh, like you know, uh, like they're you know they're, they're they're they have all these this privilege and wealth and power, but it's like mostly ceremonial. And I remember, like, every time the royal family comes up, you sort of like get the get the figurehead. A line, and I'm wondering, like, is that sort of like controlled opposition, or is is, is this cap? Is what I'm saying? Because, like, I mean, like, if if they, if they get if you get coronated with like a diamond the size of a baseball, is it like how symbolic is your authority really? I mean, because I don't know, like, you, you still own so much land and wealth, it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to say that, that that all that power and wealth and property is just only symbolic. Yeah, well, the thing is, you do have. An insane amount of power, but it's not the power of a mon- sovereign monarch. It's the power of an incredibly rich landowner, which in a country like England, that's a lot of power, like relative to the average citizen. That's an insane amount of power. It's just not connected to his formal duties, but it is exercised the way that the uh, power of all of the big landowners and capital holders in the UK is like he's in. He is at that table. The Windsors are at that table. He just doesn't get to execute it as, as the king. But it doesn't matter because the policy apparatus is going to uh, give him what he wants no matter what. Hey, Clinton. Hey, Yeltsin. Got problems? You phone me. Now I eat humble pie. I'm telling you I was the king of Spain. Now I eat humble pie. Now the Leafs call me up to drive the Zamboni. Once he was the king of Spain. Well, uh, moving on to the uh, the second uh, PR pitched uh, puff piece, uh, courtesy of the New York Times. I mean, I guess like these two articles are good examples of like uh, contrasting ways in which one can deal with like a loss of power and prestige, because the second one is, of course, about not Elizabeth Holmes, Liz Holmes, who wants you to forget about Elizabeth. And uh, a lot of people are sharing this article. It's by Amy Chozik uh, from The New York Times. And this really is. I mean, the, the Habsburg piece, I suppose, is kind of a puff piece, but at least it was like there was something there to puff about. Uh, th- this is just like a really ham-fisted attempt to, I don't know, resurrect the reputation of of Liz Holmes on the eve of her uh, impending incarceration, and they really go to some absurd lengths to do so. So let's dive into the uh, Liz Holmes puff piece by the New York Times. Elizabeth Holmes blends in with other moms here. 
in a bucket hat and sunglasses, her newborn strapped to her chest and swathed in a baby Yoda nursing blanket. We walk past a family of caged orangutans and talk about how Ms. Holmes is preparing to go to prison for one of the most notorious cases of corporate fraud in recent history. In case you're wondering, Ms. Holmes speaks in a soft, slightly low, but totally unremarkable voice. No hint of the, throat, of the throaty contralto she used while running her defunct blood testing startup, Theranos. I made so many mistakes, and there was so much I didn't know and understand. And I feel like when you do it wrong, it's really like you internalize it in a deep way, Ms. Holmes said, as we stopped to look at a hissing anaconda. So first of all, um, I'd like to note that Ms. Holmes, you know, for her philosophical turn uh, after her conviction, she should be learning from the noble orangutans and not the hissing anacondas. She should be spending her time, uh, you know, on her 25th hour, she should be spending time studying the noble orangutan and understanding yeah. what, what could be learned from them. Yeah. They're, uh, you ever see one in a zoo, they seem like they're the ones who uh, have uh, come to terms with captivity. <laughs> Uh, the best like they've, they're zen out if you put an orangutan in a um well federal prison doesn't really count because you know in captivity but like let's say a state prison i think an orangutan would probably do better than most primates mm-hmm. they have a Absolutely. sense of curiosity they understand mechanisms so they could create a shiv if they needed to Certainly. or or um i don't draw porn uh, but they could also entertain. Yes, yeah. They, there's a lot of value there with with a with a orangutan, and a lot of it comes, I think, from their ability to just sort of yeah enjoy whatever situation they find themselves in. Unlike like chimps and gorillas, whenever I go to a zoo and I see them, I just feel very bad. I feel I feel like they're very annoyed to be there. They they do not seem uh, thrilled. Yeah. Well, ch- chimps because they're like disallowed from doing more evil things yeah it's like they have should be in prison yeah chimps would probably make their own guns actually i think chimps would love prison but gorillas <laughs> yeah. absolutely not yeah they're not let, let them let them fucking vibe in the jungle yeah you know the only gorillas in captivity should be like the the rules we use for most animals like when they they sort of failed at uh being outdoor animals right yeah the indoor gorillas yeah, like when it, whenever you see it, whenever you see a video of like a really cute sea otter like learning how to swim, it's like the, that's why you have a video of him because he he has to be taught how to swim. He didn't learn. He's a remedial sea otter. Mm-hmm. He's adorable, but like you know, he's kind of he kind of fucked up his job. So he didn't now do he has a good job at sea ottering. Yeah. What about uh, King Kong? Should he be in prison for what he did to Fay Ray and the Empire State Building? What? Uh, he he shot a shot. Respect to the man. <laughs> yeah, this fucking this fucking woman came to his house and bothered him. True. <laughs> and he did love bombing. Yeah. And he just wants closure. Going on in the article, uh, she says, How would you spend your time if you didn't know how much time you had left? Ms. Holmes said. Her impending prison report date on top of mind. Perhaps even more so given that we were surrounded by animals behind bars. It would be the kind of things we're doing now because they're perfect, just being together. Miss Holmes has not spoken to the media since 2016 when her legal team advised she go quiet. And as the adage goes, if you don't feed the press, we feed on you. In Elizabeth Holmes, we found an all-you-can-eat buffet. It had everything, the black turtlenecks, the kabuki red lipstick, the green juices, the dancing to Lil Wayne. Along, somewhere along the way, Ms. Holmes says that the person, whoever that is, got lost. 
At one point, I tell her that I heard Jennifer Lawrence had pulled out of portraying her in a movie. She, she replied almost reflectively, they're not playing me. They're playing a character I created. Now, uh, we already mentioned in the piece, like uh, in the first paragraph or so, uh, she mentions that uh, Liz Holmes's voice is very different than Elizabeth Holmes's voice. And, you know, I mean, like, this is one embarrassing detail that the media did indeed eat off of. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty psychotic. Changing your voice that much because you're like, I wouldn't be taken seriously if I, if I didn't sound like a sound this way. Like, like I'm like the ghost face in the Scream movies calling you on the phone. <laughs> um, so why did she create that public persona? I believed it would be how I would be good at business and taken seriously and not taken as a little girl or a girl who didn't have good technical ideas. Ms. Holmes, who founded Theranos at 19. Maybe pe people picked up on that not being authentic since it wasn't. I mean, a good indication of the fact that you don't have any good technical ideas is the fact that you thought that this was the way you would be, quote, good at business. But I guess in a way she's right, though, because of how many people she conned out of their money, like the U.S. military and Henry Kissinger. I mean, I guess that's what it does take to be good at business if you're uh, a young woman. Yeah, I mean, this is a hate the play, hate the game, not the player situation. She just unlocked the meta. She just realized, oh, it really doesn't matter what you're saying. You know, it is a presentation. And then you can take that anywhere. Mrs. Holmes, Ms. Holmes was found guilty in January 2022 of four on four of the 11 charges that she defrauded Theranos investors out of more than $100 million. Her top lieutenant at Theranos and much older boyfriend at the time, Ramesh Balawani, was found guilty of 10 counts of wire fraud and two counts of conspiracy to commit wire fraud at Theranos. He began a 13-year prison sentence last month. On Thursday, his legal team filed an appeal with the Ninth Circuit. During the closely followed proceedings, a prosecutor, Robert Leach, said that this was a case about fraud, about lying and cheating, alleging that Theranos raised hundreds of millions of dollars from investors by misleading them about its blood testing technology's capabilities. Lance Wade, a lawyer for Ms. Holmes, said that his client made mistakes, but mistakes are not crimes. Sometimes. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you make you know, enough like... of them in a row and don't tell anybody. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know I couldn't do that. I, I didn't. I didn't know I couldn't do that. Is that not allowed? Yeah. I mean, again, what did she? She thought. I think as long as she believes in her heart that there was a p possibility of making the machine that did it, like, like there was X amount of hours spent in the lab that would produce a machine with one drop of blood would give you all the results you were looking for. Like if she thought that was true then everything she did to advance that agenda is in some way justified and not a crime because it's not malicious. Yes. We were churning all these samples through traditional machines and not telling anybody, you know, but that was just to give us more time to do the thing that I know we can do. And that's, that's what's so frustrating about dealing with, the way that the, these people, these monsters present themselves is because like their own ability to hypnotize themselves and con themselves in order to con others becomes a virtue because it means they're sincere. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that really is the thrust of this article, Matt. And I would say like uh, the idea that like as long as she thought that the like eventually the, the blood testing thing would work out and they just had to like keep the keep the wheel spinning until it mm -hmm. finally paid off is a little bit undercut by the fact that like the basic thing that they were pitching was like physically impossible and known to be so at the time. Like it like literally like could not ever, at least with existing technology, like ever do the thing it said it was going to do. 
But hey, yeah, I can't that, do that, it. that's dependent on an existing technology. So that's just it. We'll make the the non-existing technology. Don't believe us. Just watch. Uh, just keep watching. <laughs> just wait a minute. And, you know, people have defended her and rightly pointed out that that idea, fake it till you make it, kick the can down the road, scam people as much as you have to to get to what you know you can do, given enough time and money. That is the model for all the Silicon Valley monsters that have emerged sure. out of the post uh, uh, quantitative easing era. That's Uber. That's fucking Netflix. That's all of them. An impossible horizon that they cannot reach, that they have all deluded themselves into thinking is possible and then lying their balls off to keep the valuation up. And, to, and the only difference is they haven't been called on it yet. And that this one directly threatened people's lives. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's why, you know, it might be qualitatively different but the model is identical and like do you think that there's like uh she was the one who like you know was left standing when the music stopped like it, given the fact that like what she was doing as you pointed out is basically what every silicon valley entrepreneur mm -hmm. does i mean do you think it has to do with her goofy voice and like sort of like dumb dumb personality or just her annoying woman woman it's, it's the wind but it's the live by the sword die by the sword thing like is, uh, something as kind of abstract and outlandish as, as the Theranos promise requires like a significant public media awareness campaign. And she had to be the front person for that. And that meant that you were going to get a lot more eyes on her than, than other founders and other, uh, uh, other plays might. And that means if, if you are that far away from your uh, promises, then it's going to be discovered a lot quicker. I mean, like in addition to the, the weird voice, she just decided to wear black turtlenecks everywhere because she was like, oh, like that's what Steve Jobs did. And I'm going to be the next Steve Jobs. And I think it is impressive that that basically worked. Like that, that's all these people needed to see. They were like, oh, the turtleneck yeah. and the weird voice. Lady Steve Jobs. Yeah. Chozik writes, if you hate Elizabeth Holmes, you probably think her feigned perma-horseness was part of an elaborate scheme to defraud investors. If you are a person who is sympathetic to Ms. Holmes, then the James Earl Jones inflection was a sign of the impossible gymnastics that female founders must perform to be taken seriously. If you spend time with Ms. Holmes, as I did, you might come away like me and think that, as with many things about Elizabeth Holmes, it was both. Either way, even Mr. Evans agrees. The voice was real weird. <laughs> yeah, it was a little weird. <laughs> I realized I was essentially writing a story about two different people. There was Elizabeth, celebrated in the media as a rock star investor whose brilliance dazzled illustrious rich men and whose criminal trial captivated the world. Then there is Liz, as Mr. Evans and her friends call her, the mom of two for the past year who has been volunteering for a rape crisis hotline who can't stomach R-rated movies, and who rushed after me one afternoon with a paper towel to wipe a mix of sand and her dog's slobber off my shoe. So there's uh, uh, Elizabeth, uh, and then there's Liz, who is Elizabeth after she got caught. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. And uh, she had the kids after she got caught. Yeah. Uh, so it seems like another little... Uh, little uh sort of um i don't know symbolic totem for her to create a new persona that she's selling now to the new york times after Ms. ms holmes was convicted rupert murdoch who invested 125 million dollars in theranos emailed the wall street journal a newspaper he owns calling himself one of a bunch of old men taken in by a seemingly great young woman total embarrassment i am not a smarter or more astute observer of human behavior than mr murdoch or george schultz the former secretary of state who helped end the cold war 
or James Mattis, the retired four-star Marine Corps general and former defense secretary, both of whom were Theranos board members and investors. So how could I be sure that Liz wasn't another character that Ms. Holmes had created? I was admittedly swept up in Liz as an authentic and sympathetic person. She's gentle and charismatic in a quiet way. My editor laughed at me when I shared these impressions, telling me, and I quote, Amy Chozik, you got rolled. I vigorously disagree. You don't know her like I do. But then something very strange happened. I worked my way through a list of Ms. Holmes' friends, family, and longtime supporters, whom she and Mr. Evans suggested I speak to. One of these friends said Ms. Holmes had genuine intentions at Theranos and didn't deserve a lengthy prison sentence. Then this person requested anonymity to caution me not to believe anything Ms. Holmes says. <laughs> what do you think, though? 11 years in prison, is that, too, is that too stiff a sentence for someone who merely uh, had, like, you know, her fraud merely had the potential to kill people and uh, didn't actually, uh, I don't know, that we know I mean, of. there is some bad stuff in there. Like, they were, they were taking blood samples from cancer like terminal cancer patients you know with the with them believing they were part of a study that might have you know uh or, or no that they would have like they believed that they were getting their blood red you know as part of their cancer treatment like the level of cancer blood cancer um medication in their blood and so that's that's pretty fucked up i mean it does feel like she is the sacrificial goat though in all these cases, if ever you see like an actual prison sentence as opposed to good behavior, it's because this is a person who isn't really that influential or powerful and can get staked down and fucking butchered and not really affect any of the major struts of power. So in that respect, it can never really be justified. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I walk away thinking. Like, I, I, I guess she should probably go to prison, but at the same time, how many thousands of like Aetna or Blue Cross Blue Shield yeah. executives sh should just go straight to the chair, you know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, if yeah like the, she was trying to break into uh, an industry where everybody uh, already ensconced within deserves, yes, as you said, the death penalty. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's hard for me. I don't know. I, I don't feel like particularly excited about her going to prison. Yeah, it doesn't. No, it's not. I, I, prison isn't always about like ameliorating the crime or making everything better, but this certainly doesn't accomplish anything. Yeah. Um, is she like a weird, dishonest person, a complete liar and bullshit artist? Yeah. I mean, she's being that in this piece, and it's working successfully on Amy Chozik. But I just, I, I, I don't see any positive outcome from her being in prison for 11 years. I mean, I like to think that you'd get more yield out of, I don't know, sending the owner of a private hospital chain to prison for 11 years than this. This just, this is just what everyone already knows. Like Matt said, if you're outside and you try to try to do the usual graft of the U S medical system, you will probably get slapped down in some way or the other. And how about that list of the uh, shareholders and investors that she defrauded, including General Mad Dog Mattis and Rupert Murdoch and George Schultz, former Secretary of State? Can we can we send them to Devil's Island, please? Because every single one of those guys has done things that are far more murderous and insane than she she got away with. Yeah, I also, I mean, that's probably half the reason she's actually going to prison. Yeah, <laughs> because she, yeah, oh yeah, she took money she stole from, from people who, people who mattered. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm skipping ahead a little bit. They're talking about um, 
uh, about how she met her our current husband. Uh, a mutual friend introduced him to Ms. Holmes, and, and, and the pair talked for three hours. My friends were texting, where are you? We're here, Mr. Evans recalled. To say we immediately fell in love isn't an overstatement. Mr. Evans was 25 and living with roommates in San Francisco, but in many ways he was more mature than Ms. Holmes. She was 32 and had never opened a bottle of wine. What? Hmm. Like, like she had like never. I, I don't think that means like she never drank wine. She just doesn't know how to open a bottle of wine. Yeah, is that what I'm to believe from this? But it's like most so. wine is like screw top now. I mean, like how how incompetent do you have to be? And she doesn't watch R-rated movies either. That was another good. <laughs> Did you send someone who hasn't seen cussing or or nudity in a movie to prison? I don't think so. Something's fundamentally unjust about that. But if you have sullied yourself with adult related entertainment, I think you you're, you qualify for for at least being eligible to go to prison. Um, it says, Elizabeth lived in complete isolation with Sonny. Her father, Christian Holmes IV, told me, it's hard to explain the extent to which she missed so much of growing up that someone does in their 20s. As Theranos settled an onslaught of civil lawsuits and federal prosecutors closed in on criminal charges, Ms. Holmes started to socialize again, reconnecting with family and friends. Despite everything going so horribly in her life, we had our daughter back. And it was wonderful to see how she used to be, her mother, Noel, Noel Holmes, said. Where do you go when your life's work and reputation go up in flames? Burning Man. Ms. Holmes and Mr. Evans went to the desert oasis for moneyed bohemians. She burned a tribute to Theranos. There was an incredible sense of grief because I'd given everything to it my whole life since I'd been 18, she said of that period. I mean, that's the only thing that I kind of like wasn't aware of that this article uh, mentioned is that she founded Theranos when she was 19. Yeah. That's deranged. That's too young to be an entrepreneur. That's too young to be starting a company. Yeah. Just, yeah. There needs to be some sort of uh, age limit for that kind of thing. Yeah. See an R-rated comedy and open a bottle of wine, please, before you start <laughs> seeking investments for yeah. your medical technology. It also makes me think that like she shouldn't have to pay back the investors. <laughs> like That's really your own fault. Yeah. yeah. Like you if it's not, it's not yeah. money. If a 19-year-old is like, oh, I can I can read everyone's blood and you don't investigate <laughs> further, like you, you really only have yourself to blame. Yeah, that that is just frankly irresponsible. You gave money to a child thinking they were gonna perform magic for you. Yeah. Do you think do you think all these guys like Rupert Murdoch and Mad Dog Madass were like kind of turned on by her? Like do you think they just oh, thought 1 she million was hot? percent. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, probably. They were probably like, she's a real firecracker. Yeah. <laughs> Their toddler, William, recently had a 105-degree fever, the couple said. They raced him to the emergency room. The first thing the attending doctor said was, you look a lot like that horrible woman. <laughs> Ms. Holmes, <laughs> Ms. Holmes looked at him with her piercing blue eyes and said, I'm sure you're a better person than she is. The doctor seemed to realize who he was talking to. She continued, then he said, are you Elizabeth Holmes? And I said, yes. And he said, I'm so sorry. And I said, don't be. All you know is what you've read. <laughs> that doctor rough. wins pussy of the year. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the most courageous doctor. <laughs> That's rough, though. Like your, your infant has 105 degree fever, fever and the person in charge of like saving his life or whatever is just like, hey, you remind me a lot of that uh, awful piece of shit who I hate and certainly <laughs> wouldn't give medical treatment to if they, if they were dying in front of me. But he says, like, all I, you I mean, know, well, like little William's still alive. Yeah. They still, so, like, no matter the doctor's opinions, they still cool that baby down. <laughs> Put him on the windowsill and he's just fine now. <laughs> Give him a cold one. 
yeah. <laughs> crack the chorus. It says, um, uh, by Billy's father, William L. Evans's tally, there are over 67,600,600 web results on Ms. Holmes, all of them negative, compared with 21 million results, many of which are positive for Osama bin Laden. Figures he wrote in a letter to the court. <laughs> I do like the line where she says, um, uh, don't be sorry. All you know is what you've read. And what you've read is a list of things I've done. <laughs> a list of things I've said and done. So if that's all you have to judge me on, then I agree. I'm a horrible person. I also like, I like the idea that there's like a difference between 21 million bad things about you and 68 million bad things about you. <laughs> like, is everyone reading yeah. all of the, like, yeah, the I'm pretty marginal. sure anything, yeah, anything past like a thousand is just the <laughs> yeah. same. Yeah, yeah. What's the, Not a lot of marginal the, utility there. Once the eye of Sauron that is like a Google search result casts its gaze upon you, it's pretty much fixed. Yeah. Ms. Holmes defenders, stretching back to childhood, said in letters to the court and in conversation with me that the feverish coverage of Ms. Holmes' downfall felt like a witch trial, less rooted in what actually happened at Theranos and more of a message to ambitious women everywhere. Don't girl boss too close to the sun or this could happen to you. <laughs> I mean, I know there's something to be said for... In, in a profile like this, um, airing things like this in the spirit of giving them someone enough rope to hang themselves. But I don't, I'm not getting that from this article, no, especially when her own, her own editor was like, you got rolled. And she's like, no, really, listen. Listen to me. She took her kid to a zoo. It's also like with the thing that Chosik is going for, there are examples of the thing she's trying to describe, right? Like, I think Martha Stewart is actually... The, yeah. the Martha Stewart case is a great example of like someone who supposedly committed this awful crime that was like identical, if not many degrees less serious than uh, several concurrent equivalents, but got punished for like being a bitch in the eyes of the public. Right. Yeah. Like that's what's being described here. That's that has tons of historical precedents. You know, Martha Stewart for one. This is really like, yeah, a little bit, but I mean, there's kind of the part where she's fraudulently providing medicine. Yeah, <laughs> that's the main thing here, you know. And, and the did Martha that. Stewart happened. Martha Stewart, which was a, a completely unjust. I mean, like, I mean, look, yeah. she, she broke the law, but she did not deserve jail time for that. And that was over like a stock transaction worth like forty thousand dollars, and this was like hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, there's it's a perfect case of like, well, we can't keep not ever convicting literally anyone of any financial crime ever. Who can we put the book, throw the book out without it causing any ripples? Oh, this freaking celebrity, this lifestyle brand lady who people are kind of sick of. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. Just like the typical bravery of a prosecutor. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Whereas with this one, it's like, well, what the fuck did you expect? Yeah. You know? Yeah. In what, like, in literally, like, in what universe is she not going? Is there not going to be a trial? You know? <laughs> yeah, that's what, that's what you get for girl bossing too close to the sun. Uh, the ne next quote is There's an unspoken lesson for female executives. You're allowed to be successful, but not too successful. Jackie Lamping, a Kappa Alpha Theta sorority sister of Ms. Holmes at Stanford, wrote in a letter to Judge DeVia, who oversaw the trial. I mean, 
Uh, that's like I, I think her former sorority sister is trying to get her like a <laughs> even more of a gas price sentence by bat fucking letter. Yeah, oh, you, can't be, you can't be too successful as a woman. It's just like, well, like you said, like the fraud aside, like if this had actually gone into practice, it could have actually killed like could actually have killed people. Yeah, and she's not re- like she's sort of she's not on trial for being successful. It's sort of the opposite. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's there's one uh, there's another astonishing part of the story uh, about her dog. It says here, I can't shake an earlier story that Mr. Evans relayed. In the waning days of Theranos, Ms. Holmes got a dog, a Siberian husky named Balto. Real fucking original name. <laughs> really had to yeah. really had to rack your brain for that one. Uh, last year, when a mountain lion carried Balto away from their front porch, Ms. Holmes spent 16 hours searching in the woods, digging through brambles and poison oak, hoping to find him alive. Everyone knew Balto was dead, but Ms. Holmes kept searching. The relentlessness, the certainty, the fanaticism. It's the same way Ms. Holmes kept hanging on at Theranos. <laughs> Ugh. I mean, you know, it's. I think we can all relate to the heartbreak of having a dog torn to shreds by a mountain lion, and then mm. frantically searching the woods for hours for like the, its bloodied collar. It's like, is that supposed to be like an exonerating detail? I mean, I think it's supposed to like, be. Like, is is Theranos like? Is it okay if they're defrauding people if she, in some level, like really believes it's actually going to work someday? Well, if you still believe the dog is alive, you know, until you yeah. find it. <laughs> Well, I mean, if her blood testing technology could have worked, I mean, like, just think it would have been made, would have made IDing the dog's remains a lot easier. <laughs> Over antioxidant smoothies, Ms. Holmes told me she has ideas for COVID testing, drawing on her work in a Singapore lab as a college student. Elizabeth, yes, please. We need, we need her in this field right now. We need an even more rapid COVID test, and I think she'd be, she'd be allowed to work on this uh, while she's incarcerated. How about, it, here's the idea. Wi-Fi COVID test. (laughs) Your COVID uh, molecules bounce off of a a high-frequency radio wave and they are bounced back to the source, and then I'm able to triangulate whether or not you have COVID. I will have $500 billion, please. Well, I was thinking about this. Uh, Before you say no, uh, I have the embalmed corpse of uh, Curtis LeMay on my board of directors. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking, I think maybe like uh, she was, she chose the wrong country to do Theranos in because if like she had some wacky pseudoscientific blood testing tech, Japan was really the country mm. that would be interested in that. And the fact that it's fraudulent and doesn't work, if, if, if they had some sort of tech infused uh, blood type analyzer, a way that you mm-hmm. can quickly uh, determine someone's inferiority based on blood yep. type. Japan, yep. hey. Guy comes to take your daughter for a date, just put the <laughs> finger in the box. I got to find out. <laughs> Be or lower, you're out of here, buddy. <laughs> yeah. She maintains the idealistic delusion of a 19-year-old, never mind that she's 39, with a fraud conviction, telling me she is still working on healthcare-related inventions that would, and would contribute to do so behind, would continue to do so behind bars. I still dream about being able to contribute to that in that space, Ms. Holmes said. I still feel the same calling to it as, a, as I always did. And I think the need is still there. Yeah, we, uh, I mean, it's sort of like what you said, Felix, about how any, like anyone working for a health insurance company should get like the, the minimum jail sentence that they should get is what Elizabeth Holmes just got. The minimum. 11 years in federal prison. And all this idea about how we still need innovation in the healthcare sphere. It's like, no, people just need healthcare. 
Like yeah. uh, the the innovations. I mean, like sure, continue to innovate, but we don't need these like moonshots on like a, a blood Wi Fi blood testing. Uh, when when you know, like uh, health insurance costs thousands of dollars for a family. Well, also like, what condition would need to be met for them to innovate? Like, are they not just rent seeking at the absolute maximum capacity? Are they not just squeezing every possible dollar out of every single thing you could charge somebody for? Like, if they if they don't have enough money to innovate, then like they never will. Yeah. But then it will never fucking be profitable enough. There will never be enough free cash flow for them to, to like throw in for R and D. Because I mean, that's not the point. That is that's always the reason we're given for like yeah. why everything sucks so much. But it's clearly not the goal. Like, what have been like the major like moonshot leap forwards i mean i know they come out with like new cancer drugs and stuff like that but like you know was it like cuba's medical system came up with a lung cancer vaccine but like oh like we can't have that in america because they need all that money for uh, r&d even though like most of it goes into marketing i mean there have been there have been like very good advancements in the last 40 years like aids is no longer a death sentence there's tons of technological advancements but it's you can't really like look at the rest of the world and just declare that this is the only way to meet those advancements. It seems to me that like there are just so many problems that don't get solved because there's not enough rent seeking capacity for them anyway. Like, did you, did you read that article about the woman with the uh, heart transplant? No. What was it? It was, it was in the New York times. It was really, it was really good. It was this woman who got a heart transplant, like, uh, 20 something years ago she's like done everything that you're supposed to do when you get a transplant um she lived a completely healthy lifestyle followed every dietary restriction no alcohol nothing and she's in her 50s and she's gonna die in a few months because we just haven't figured out how to maintain those types of transplants for a long a long term like anything that's isn't rejected after a year is considered a success and there hasn't really been any strides forward on that partly like, partly due to like just the insane bureaucracy and rent seeking every step of the way as part of the medical system partly because it doesn't seem profitable enough but it just you know it's an example of something that 40 or 50 years ago people rightfully assumed that we'd at least be on our way to figuring this out by now. And we have it. Well, yeah, like it, it's an issue of like there, there are, yeah, like you said, like, uh, like AIDS basically, um, not being like the death sentence we all thought it was when I was growing up. It's like, I mean, that's a, that's a huge advancement, but then like, there are all these things like, like actually like very deadly medical conditions of which like theoretically there could be a cure for, but there's just not enough people have them. So it's not really profitable to invest in it. And I think about that whenever I see like the Susan G. Komen Foundation or any of these like cancer charities raising money for breast cancer awareness and research. And I'm just like, with things like breast cancer, is like, is anyone not aware of it? Or like, do they really need the money at this point? Like, what are they raising money for? Like, you're saying like, oh, like we were just, uh, we would have a breast cancer, we'd have a cure for breast cancer if we just had another billion dollars. Well, there's a, there's a whole other issue with the um, NGO charity industrial complex, but um, I mean, foregoing even things like cures for cancer or cancer vaccines or anything anything headline grabbing like that that would certainly be like a huge advancement. Just more basic things like 
people dying in hospitals because they're in such horrible conditions at rates much higher than, you know, much poorer countries, infant mortality, just basic things that no one really thinks about because people kind of assume that if it costs this much, it shouldn't really be a problem. Those are seemingly just getting worse. Yeah, that's a good point. Cause like we don't need a moonshot or some huge advancement to like lower infant, infant and maternal mortality. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, Returning to the article, it says here, if your head is exploding at how divorced from reality this sounds, that's kind of the point. When Ms. Holmes uses the messianic vernacular of tech, I get the sense that she truly believes that she could have, and in fact still could, change the world. And she doesn't much care if we believe her or not. Liz is not a natural-born leader. She is more of a zealot than a showwoman. Showman, Mr. Evans wrote to Judge Davila. Ms. Holmes eventually found her beloved husky, Balto, in the woods, but by then the dog was gone, torn apart by the mountain lion. Nope. Well, that's how it goes. Hey, that's something that we should um, consider investing in. I'm like a sort of a startup to deal with the mountain lion problem because those things are vicious. Oh, yeah. Uh, a deal where you, get, you, you put a little vest on your dog and it has <laughs> uh, like spikes on it like so that if it attacks, that would like, you know, prevent it. Okay, no how about, okay, how about how about this? Um, you know how we chip dogs? Mm. Uh, you know, there's like an RFID chip. Let's have a second chip. And this chip's a little bit more complex. It has your dog's entire personality in all its memories. <laughs> and, and it's made out of like the same material we make like edible panties out of. And <laughs> so it's the first thing a mountain lion eats when it eats your dog. But then it takes over the mountain lion's brain and installs your dog's AI. So <laughs> even though you've lost your dog, this mountain lion is going to come to your house and just behave like your dog that you thought Felix, you lost forever. That is, I talk about a moonshot worthy of investing in. If I could have a mountain yeah. lion that behaved like a golden retriever, <laughs> oh my god, yeah, that, that would be, be the coolest so person cool. on earth. Well, I'm glad you. I'm glad. I'm glad that you guys are enthusiastic. Uh, my company. My company is called uh, Dog Brand. Um, <laughs> we got to get this our in front investor, of the shark our, tank. Well, we. I don't actually need that. I've already got investors. We've got. Oh, uh, really? Bo yeah, Bomber Harris <laughs> is on board. One hundred and ninety-year-old Bomber Harris, um, Kermit Roosevelt. <laughs> And Dean Ken. <laughs> I've also heard the Obamas are interested. You're, you're showing them your pitch deck. Uh, Malik Obama vineyard. is on board. Yes. <laughs> he, he just wants to eat the mountain lion, though. He's, he, he, <laughs> he's like, oh, when's it going to get licensed in Kekistan? And I'm like, that's great, Malik. I love that. <laughs> Just at the end of the article, it says, uh, this Friday, uh, that Friday, they were getting ready to host a group of friends from the Bay Area. They invited me to stay. They repeatedly invited me to come back to bring my family. We could all go to the zoo together. I appreciated their hospitality, but I didn't fully understand it. Usually, interview subjects can't wait to get rid of me. <laughs> Gee, Amy, I, I, I wonder why Liz no. is just begging you to come back so she could keep talking to you. Usually, yeah, that's a bad sign. Then I realized why they kept opening the door wider. Ms. Holmes is unlike anyone I've ever met, modest but mesmerizing. If you are in her presence, it is impossible not to believe her, not to be taken with her, and not to be taken in by her. Liz Holmes and Billy Evans know that. I politely declined the invitation. So, uh, great job by Amy Chozik. I mean, again, like, I don't think, 
uh, you know, like I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not. This this piece doesn't make me sympathetic to Elizabeth Holmes, but like I don't think she's like a, a complete monster or a psychopath either. I mean, she's just she has she's investor, one she has them. entrepreneur brain. Like, I mean, she's like, got the brain. She, I mean, and, and you look at how she grew up. You know, this is true of anybody who ends up in prison. The 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 conditions yeah, yeah. of their uh, childhood end up being very determinative. And in this case, like you brought up by a bunch of Bay Area freaks, they're gonna they're gonna turn you into a, a mutant to serve yeah. their needs. No, seriously, like I blame Stanford. Like, yeah, we need like oh, we need to talk about that. Stanford. It is a it is a demon factory down there. They are just cranking out demonic entities. I guess I got just a just a few quick a uh, few quick stories about um, former friends of the show who are back in the news, uh, starting with. Biden names Neera Tandon as, the, as his domestic policy advisor. Hell yes. Woo! It's cranking up, Huge. baby. 20, 2024 is going strong. Uh, Tandon will, it's not a uh, position that needs to be uh, affirmed by the Senate, which we know she couldn't do. Because remember, her, posts, her <laughs> yeah. posts denied her a Senate-approved position. Mwah. Hilarious. But now she gets to come in through the back door. But, you know, like, she, she, this is what she's been waiting for. And, I, and we simply must doff of the cap to Nero Tandon. I just want to read one thing here from this article. The decision to elevate Tandon comes as Biden prepares a re-election campaign that will rely in part on the effective implementation of a slate of domestic policy accomplishments spanning infrastructure, climate, and health care. The Domestic Policy Council under Rice also had also played a central role in devising the administration's strategy for replacing Title 42, the strict Trump-era border policy that's set to lift next week. So, Talk about an easy job got to tout those domestic accomplishments. It, this is on rails for Nira here. And then uh, just another friend of the show. Uh, some good news here. Andrew Gillum, ex-candidate for Florida governor, acquitted of lying to the FBI. Let's Ooh. go. Good a job. Total Andrew. exoneration. Not guilty. Gillum was he should run of- against DeSantis. Oh, he can't. No, for president. <laughs> 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 I. He should he should primary uh, Biden. He got look. He got really close. Yeah, it's amazing how close he came to being governor. Closer than fucking Charlie Crisp. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. No, he he is almost there. It's wild. That's such a that's such a hinge point there because DeSantis just barely squeaked by that first time, and now we'll never get rid of his fucking ass. But Andrew Gillum, he should go for it. Gillum versus DeSantis at the national level, twenty twenty four rematch. Let's go. It says Gillum was acquitted of lying to undercover FBI agents posing as developers who paid for a 2016 trip he took with his brother to New York, including hotel rooms, meals, a boat tour, and a ticket to the hit Broadway show Hamilton. <laughs> I mean, like, we're talking about a honeypot. But these, yeah. these, fucking, these undercover FBI agents, they're sick. You well, show like, someone okay, a good time, like, and then you well, try to arrest the them. Okay, what the fuck is the point of that FBI investigation? Because, like, that just sounds identical to what every, like, legal thing that lobbyists do for democratic politicians yeah like that's that sounds identical to like literally like yeah what like uh, stacy abrams or fucking chris dodd would do every week look at what clarence thomas is up to oh my god yeah. it's like yeah i'm just i am the, the the i am the pet of a fucking billionaire who who just gives me who who funds me a lifestyle vastly out of the reach of any civil servant, even See, a member of the Supreme Court. <laughs> and has okay. business before it. 
Yeah. And, and they can use my wife as a cutout to fucking uh, funnel he, money through. Uh, two things about the, uh, the Clarence Thomas, because which is a story that continues to give and give. There's Leonard Leo uh, in, in, in his own like business documents uh, creating a $50,000 a year make work job for Jenny Thomas said in the business documents, make sure to leave Jenny's name off the papers. Yeah. Like textbook corruption. This is through Kellyanne Conway's polling outfit. And they like hired her as a consultant. And by the way, John Roberts's wife also has one of these sweetheart fucking fake jobs to do consulting for some a lobbying organization or something like that. But the thing about um, Harlan Crow paying for Clarence Thomas's nephew's tuition is I like all the indignant responses from the Clarence Thomas defenders. Where they were like, they have kept this secret for years because of like you know like the the the, the tender adoption of his nephew, his troubled nephew, and then like. Uh, taking charge of his, uh, you know, uh, you know, raising him and sending him to school or whatever. And I'm like, okay, uh, like, you know, that's a, that's a nice selfless thing done by uh, Clarence Thomas, but actually for it to be selfless and for him to be your kid, you would have to pay for his tuition yourself. That's usually yeah. what happens when you have a kid yeah. or adopt like the, a kid. They're, and they're treating it like this is, his, his amazing charity was just acting as like a conduit for money from this guy. Like that's it, because he just—it's not like he he uh, took him under his roof or anything. He just said, "Yeah, you pay for it." And uh, one other thing on the Clarence Thomas thing, Matt, you said that um, like Thomas is sort of is like uh, the pet of Harlan Crow that he like you know takes on vacations to volcanoes in New Zealand. But I gotta say, uh, I forget who made this point uh, this week, but it, it it gave me pause about like in terms of like where the corruption is. I think Harlan Crow and Leonard Leo may be Clarence Thomas's pet. Because the question is, like, that people bring up is, like, would he vote otherwise if he wasn't getting all this fucking graft? And the answer is probably no. But I think the corruption comes from Clarence Thomas. What he's asked, what he's getting from them or what they're getting from him in exchange for all these vacations and buying his mother's house and giving his wife all this bribe money under the table is him not retiring. Right. Yes. Because, like, yeah, think how yeah. easy it would be for him to retire under Biden because he's in his 80s. He's they're giving him all this yeah. money. So he sticks around at least until there's another Republican president, because there is a real like brainworm that sets in when you are hanging out at the highest elite levels in this country. Like if you're a Supreme Court justice, you're only making what, like two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. It's, it's more than the president, I think, but it's still like less than a half a million dollars a year. And you're around socially people who are in the upper stratosphere of wealth. A lot of people who aren't, you know, like uh, justice monks are over time going to be like, damn, I would like some of that. And if the only way you can get it is to quit the Supreme Court, that becomes a real danger. But if you could guarantee that they get to live mm -hmm. the most baller-ass billionaire lifestyle while being public servants, then yeah, they'll, they'll stay there till they fucking keel over. As long as they get to shovel oysters into their fucking dome until they explode like Scalia did. <laughs> like Mr. fucking Creosote. Oh, dear. Bucket. Well, nothing's probably going to happen with that, but like, no, is, is Andrew Gillum, is he going to run again? Governor? <laughs> like, I'd love he had to a see good, him. He had a good plan last time of like, you know, saying Maduro's a dictator, not overdosing on meth until after the election. <laughs> he showed some admirable yeah. restraint there. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, hit dog, that hit dogs will holler thing. One of the dumbest fucking things oh I've ever God. heard. Everyone was like, damn, he is serving. What the fuck are you even talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, you wait, hit wait, the wait, dog, that it's again? hollering. Why wouldn't a dog that got hit holler? What is it supposed to do? Well, Andrew, Andrew Gillum, um, 
in one of the debates, like uh, Ron DeSantis was bitching about Andrew Gillum calling him racist. And Gillum's like, well, you know what? A hit dog will holler, meaning like, well, if the shoe fits, you know, wear it. Which yeah. like, yeah, fine. Sure. Like uh, you, you can definitely say that about Ron DeSantis, but it's just it's just a stupid fucking phrase. It means nothing. Like it, it apparently comes why from, wouldn't a hit dog holler? Well, that's the thing. I asked this question and apparently this is an actual expression with roots somewhere. Maybe it's southern. I don't know. But it's that if you were to throw a bunch of rocks at a group of dogs, the ones you hit would holler. And therefore, <laughs> if somebody gets mad about you calling them a racist, oh, that's because I hit you with the racist rock. Uh, so, that's, so that's their version. Why of are like you a, throwing rocks? Why are you throwing rocks at dogs? That's their version of a sports analogy. Just like sitting on your porch, <laughs> whipping rocks at dogs. Yeah, it's like you're not you're raising a lot of questions about you, not the, not the hit yeah. dog. What a We're shitty part lots of the country. Dogs. What a shitty part of America. <laughs> Everything they say is so fucking stupid. You know, uh, a skinned cat will wail. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> if, you, if you pull the legs off a spider, it'll sort of twitch on the ground. I, I don't want to hear any fucking axum <laughs> or catchphrase from the South. It's just all so fucking dumb. A oh, when you, stay, when, you stick a, when you stick a shotgun up your ass, it hurts. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but uh, Matt, to your point about um, his Supreme Court salary, uh, I did. someone did point out this week that Clarence Thomas was said on record a while ago that being on the Supreme Court isn't worth what the job pays. So, I mean, like, mm. that's, that's a little bit of a signal to the Harlan Crows of the world to keep coughing up these, uh, you know, all these bribes and whatnot. It's, not, the other- it, it's not a good job is the thing. Like for certain types of people, they can like get off on certain elements of it. But like over time, I imagine those wear out. And what you're left with is a relatively meager amount of work that mostly boils down to justifying your pre-existing political commitment on an issue. So there's no real intellectual challenge to it other than how do I gussy this up? You know, and you don't really work that much. You know, it's boring. Like, And you can't really do anything else. So I, I think a lot of them get stir crazy. Like Souter quit as soon as a Democrat won. Like Souter was like, I'm out of here. I fucking hate this job. And I think that affects affects even the right wing ideologues as well. And then, yeah, you got to keep them there. But like, you know, and thinking about all this, I, I just simply have to return once again to how fucking stupid are the Democrats and their billionaire donors for not fucking buying Ruth Bader Ginsburg an island or something like that. To get her but to you retire. couldn't see. That's the thing. Yeah. She's got a different brain that's wired Everyone's to got a her price. job differently. Like she, she would say, how dare you to that? And it's because she is, is like wedded to these institutions in a way that Clarence Thomas isn't. Because the thing about Clarence Thomas and Ro- Corey Robin and others have pointed this out is that he is at heart a black nationalist who fully understands that America is like deeply racist. Like he is down with every CRT critique of like America as a white supremacist enterprise. Everything else is built on top of that. Uh, And that means that he just does not give a shit about these institutions the way that someone, a fucking nerd who came up through them and like adhered to them like Gator Ginsburg did. So like, yeah, she was, she wouldn't take any money to leave the court. That would be invalidating her entire career. Clarence Thomas thinks that's knows the the truth, which is that that's all fucking bullshit. Yeah, I, show me I, the goddamn money. Yeah, like the 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 reading of him is kind of like an Afro pessimist. Is fascinating yeah, because like, he's like, I, get it, he's get like, it. this is all bullshit. Get your money. So I'm gonna get, get your mine. money. That's the country you live in. It's not changing. You're not voting it out. Get your money. 
Yeah, I mean, like, you know, and like, if once you accept that, then like the only way for black people to have power are by like placating deeply racist white institutions. But yep. like, if you do it well enough, you can have quite a bit of power. You can mm-hmm. have like, you know, godlike power over our entire legal system if you play your cards right. Yeah. In, in, in what is officially supposed to be a not racist country. You can take right. advantage of that. Yeah. Like people like to point out the hypocrisy that like he did benefit from affirmative action in his career and then he was against it. And it's like, yeah, the affirmative action from Clarence Thomas's perspective has robbed him of any pleasure he can get from his ascent through the institutions of American law because he'll never not be a a fucking uh, affirmative action hire. He can never get rid of that. He knows that and he fucking resents it. And it also means he doesn't fucking give a shit about uh, these institutions. It doesn't feel validated by them the way that Ruth Bader Ginsburg does or did RIP to a legend. (sighs) The literal legend, the legend of the dumbass who didn't know when to fucking quit. Well, you know what? Like in that case, uh, if, if if buying her an island or giving like basically giving her Martha's Vineyard, like that's what I would have been on the table. I would have said, Ruth, Martha's Vineyard could be like your own. It could be your Vatican yeah. if you retire now. And that like, well, we will make you like in your in your heirs, like the Habsburgs of Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> But if that if that wasn't going to work, you know, you got to go with option B, which is the polonium tipped umbrella. Because like the racing yeah, you got to take umbrella. them out. You got to got to take her out. Like, you got to go. Can't have it. God, Can't have the it. The way that they had to like, the way that they had to negotiate Briar out of that seat, like he like held up there with a fucking shotgun, like like he wouldn't leave the evacuation zone when the hurricane's coming. <laughs> like they had to talk him out with a bullhorn for like beg him, and it, there was all this concern of like, well, we can't be too insistent. And 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 uh, too obvious in saying that we need him to retire so that a Democrat could replace him, because then he's going to think more and more about how this is a political. That would mean that he is a political agent and not an arbiter of justice, which would he doesn't like that. Like you're going to spook him. He's going to run back into the woods. <laughs> That's how the libs treat the court like they they have they're fully in enraptured. They're they're entranced by this stuff. Like all the conservatives know that this is all fucking bullshit. Yeah. They, they know that power is the only thing that matters, and they've come to terms with that one way or the other. And contrast that as with our, you know, Senate Judiciary Committee Chair Dick Durbin, who keeps releasing <laughs> statements like, like, history will judge this court, Mr. Oh. History will judge you, John Roberts. And it's like, well, he'll be dead, so who gives a shit? Oh, I'll be judged I, by history? Just, I don't give a shit. That's such a perfect fucking response. Like, well, yeah. you know what? Uh, I, I, you're going to have to have that on your conscience then, sir. Wow. <laughs> And, you know, it, it, it co- incredibly useful thing. <laughs> and, you know, it, but then like uh, d- defenders of, of Dickie D, you know, like they'd say, it's like, as we often return to on this show, but what really can the Democrats do? Because like they ain't, there ain't enough votes for impeachment or like packing yeah. the court or blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, they're kind of. But I think I mean, the argument like, is like you. I don't think that lets you, them off the hook because you have to like take they've been gifted an issue. That yeah. is like overwhelmingly popular in the public, i.e. like the Supreme Court and the people on it have never been less popular or trusted. So you have to you have to fucking just like push that as far as it fucking goes. No, see, no, because to them, yeah, the Supreme Court is a load bearing institution preventing the fucking barbarians from just overwhelming everything. The the, the Republican, the, the chuds that they are terrified of. That is part of the bulwark. That's part of the dam. And if you start kicking at it, then you are risking getting fucking blown over by by uh, a wave because they really do feel that like these things are uh, are real and have a real power to keep us on like a re- you know on on uh, out of extremism and, and and 
they're terrified. So like every time this every story about climate Clarence Thomas that comes out, I guarantee you these fucking Democrat senators are like, oh shit, I have to deal with this now. Yeah. Like I'm hey idiots, I'm on your team. I'm trying to keep this institution up. But because the people in it are now just fully hollowed out cynical nihilists, they don't fucking give a shit. Roberts cares a little about the institution uh legitimacy of the court, but like his response to this shows that even there, it, there's just you know, an arbitrary line that he's willing to ignore uh, in his convenience because obviously he doesn't really care either or else he would do more to get rid of the appearance of impropriety. But so these guys are the only ones left holding this thing up and they have to just watch as, as the as the conservatives just eat it, eat away at it like termites. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's just it's baffling because like Earl Warren is not walking through that door, you know, like the Supreme Court as a bulwark against like American right wing fanaticism is like the, the call is coming from inside the house. Like that is what is going to facilitate barbaric right wing extremism in the future. But again, they don't care about that either. Yeah, they don't care. No, about they'll, that be fine. They, they, they'll, they'll be fine. They'll come to some sort of accommodation. They're always going to assume that. And so as long as, you know, they're in the position they are and uh, any kind of real you know, effort means, oh, if we're going to actually take, because this is the thing, if you do propose as a, as a thing, hey, we're the Democrats and we are going to go after the institutional corruption of the court, then you can't run, you can't have these Democrats doing that. Like it just, they can't be the ones to do it. That means you have to get new Democrats. So the Democrats in charge have no interest in advancing that because people will come to the logical conclusion that they are not fit to do that job. So that means they're not going to bring it up under torture. They will not bring that up. The people's voice rises and cries out, Andrew Gillum, save us. We need you. We need you now more than ever. Andrew Gillum, please come I mean, and destroy this. It's Court. insane that without the fear, like I'm telling you, these people are terrified of being overrun by the, by the barbarians, but they're also so paralyzed and petrified by that fear that they're just slow walking into a senile 80 year old with a sub 40 approval rating running for a reelection. And they're just going to let it happen. It's amazing. Like they are deeply terrified of what's going to happen. And the more like theoretical power they have, the more paralyzed they are by it. It's a, it's astounding because their self-interest and the interest that they think they hold of preventing it are in direct conflict and they can't resolve the conflict. So they just stand there. Wait to get wait for Anton Chazure to come and blessedly thunk them between the eyes with the fucking cattle gun. They'll thank uh, him. They'll whisper thank you as he's going. Thump. <laughs> it's like Woody Harrelson, but instead of going, uh, do you know how crazy this is? <laughs> They're going like, you know how awesome our system of government is. <laughs> we uh, love it, don't we, folks? Yeah, but, I mean, great. like what they're really fair, afraid of is, oh, we can't go after the courts because then. They're going to the next time there's an election that's close at all. They're going to decide, you know what, uh, the, these hooting maniacs who threw up their alternative slate of electors they picked up on Craigslist. That's the actual people going to Washington to put their votes in. And what are you going to do about it as Democrats? The answer is nothing. But that, again, that is what is going to happen with them in charge no matter what. So they're terrified of a thing that they're helping bring about. Cool political system, Ahmed. You should bring it to the White House. <laughs> What's up with the clock kid? Where'd he go? He went to Yemen, right? He's uh, he has like some sort of disrupticon app now or something. I think he does. He's building a new kind of clock, one with a countdown. <laughs> uh, 
All right, let's leave it there for today. Uh, we've got some uh, some quick plugs. If you enjoyed our our, Haps, our Hapsburg chat today, we've got more 17th century related stuff coming at you at the Chapo Merch Store. Pre-orders available until May 24th. Get all your hot Habsburg, uh, Habsburg onesies, Habsburg bikinis, Habsburg dildos. They're all for sale. Uh, also, Matt and I, I think, are, are finally doing our long-delayed uh, Europa Universalis 4 mm-hmm. stream. Yes. That is scheduled for next Wednesday afternoon. I mean, specific time TBD, yeah. but uh, you know, we got the stream running again to do our wrap-up stream, so I think we should be good to go to do that. Um, yeah. and we've got I, some- I don't know. I don't know how you do this because I've never played the game, but however you can play it to try to prevent the Reformation, that's what I'm going right. to try to do. We've been told. We've been told from our guy. I've been told from our guides that he's working hard and getting the 1618 mod all set up. So I think we're going to be able to jump right into uh, Thirty Years War time. And 1618 try to will commence again. Yeah, rollback tide of, of the Reformation. Uh, and and also know, shout out to uh, Sam and his game crew for inviting me to play uh, Here I Stand yesterday. That was some very fun uh, Reformation-themed gaming. You know, it's like, uh, take it back just like to close out on the Hell on Earth theme. It's like, despite all the beef I have with the Catholic Church, I hate this work ethic so much. Like, I just, I, I hate I hate work. I hate work ethics. And, uh, you know, if, 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 that's, if, if total rule of the world by the Catholic Church is the price you pay for getting rid of that, yeah, like having uh, siestas and such. Yeah, good food, yeah. good times, yeah. sexy but ladies. Sadly, like even the Catholics are becoming less Catholic. Like, yeah, literally in the sense that you know evangelicalism is rising in the in the former Catholic world. But like in America, Catholics for the most part are just fucking Protestants. They got the same uh, hard wiring. All right, let's get let's go back to the soft wires of Hapsburg. Yeah, let's get those soft like the, like wires. The sand let's get down the wires. Three hour lunch. Like a big processional on the weekends, you just like go out in front of your house and like 500 monks with big conical hats walk by and you wave at them and then you get shit faced for the rest of the day. <laughs> They're not in the clan. They just look like it. Yeah, no, it's, it's totally cool. They're just big fans of the Virgin Mary. <laughs> let's, let's big her up. Let's big her up. Big, up, yeah. big ups to Mary. All right, guys. Till next time. See ya. Bye bye. Yeah, yeah. Race car, yeah, yeah.